Since not everyone was with us last Sunday, let me just very quickly recap where we are in the flow of things. Matthew chapter 1 closes by providing us really a very broad description of the birth of Jesus. Following a dream whereby an angel of the Lord confirms Mary's story of the virgin conception to her betrothed husband Joseph, we read in the last two verses of chapter 1, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took to him his wife, did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and Joseph called his name Jesus. That is what Matthew gives us concerning the Christmas story. When we transition into chapter 2, verse 1, reading, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We understand that roughly 18 months, 12 to 18 months, have transpired, a fact that is supported by the reality that these wise men eventually encounter, according to the text, a child living in a house and not a babe, uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The scenes are different. Now, initially clued in to the fact that the king of the Jews had been born via this unique star appearing in the eastern sky, this crew of wise men promptly make their way westward. They go across the desert, probably leaving the ancient uh, areas of Babylon and Persia, to Judea. They're searching for the child. Now, to their chagrin, as they get closer, feeling as though they're reaching their final destination, something happens. Uh, the star that's been leading them and guiding them, indicating what's happening, disappears. So they've now lost their primary source of navigation, leaving this delegation to really do the only thing that made sense in that moment. We're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. The star we had seen that brings us uh, these thousand miles across the desert has disappeared. I bet you King Herod, there in the capital city of Jerusalem, probably is in the know. So we don't know exactly where to go. So let's take a detour to Jerusalem. Let's consult with Herod uh, regarding the birth of the king. And yet, as we noted last Sunday, while Herod was blindsided initially by their inquiry. I mean, this was a threat to his rule, to his reign, a newborn king of the Jews. And he's alarmed. There's no doubt. We're told all Jerusalem was alarmed. He turns to the religious leaders and he asks them to determine where the Christ was to be born. Now, they say they're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Herod has extrapolated this out even further to to be the Christ. Guys, where's the Christ supposed to be born? We've got these guys looking. I need to know. And they consult with Scripture. They find a passage in the prophet Micah, and they come back with Bethlehem. The Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. Now, verses 7 and 8 of Matthew 2 details what happens next. We're told in Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, Determine from them what time the star appeared. Now, that will be important in a minute. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and, they, and he said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. Now, following the wise men's encounter with the young Jesus, where we're told that they fell down before him and worshipped, presenting these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, We pick things up, our story, in verse 12. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they, the wise men, departed for their own country another way. While it is unlikely that the wise men 
believed that Herod was somehow being deceivious, devious, and his request that they bring back word to him. Or, or that in some way his desire, uh, the motivation of his request to, to come and worship himself was disingenuous. Keep in mind, I mean, Herod is actually a, a pretty cool customer by this point in the story. You know, the delegation comes in, they're inquiring about the king, he doesn't know, he turns to the religious leaders. I mean, he's been cooperative all along. So the wise men, don't, they don't have a, a real solid reason to, to distrust him or, or think he's being deceivious. And yet, it's a divine warning, we're told, in verse 12. Delivered through this dream that changes their perspective. Not only do the wise men renege on their agreement to send back word of their discovery to Herod, but they decide, they make the decision that it was prudent, they depart for their country another way that they came. Now, though Herod knew that the child had been born in Bethlehem, which was in a very large place, these men figure that, that their approach, departing a different way, would at least delay when Herod caught word of, of their betrayal. It's the best they could do. Verse 13, now, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the child, the young child, to destroy him. In all likelihood, I think we could speculate, that the wise men filled Joseph in on the fact that Herod, knew about the child. They probably even filled him in that, that he was aware that the child was unique, was this newborn king. They probably shared with Joseph that, that Herod had it on good authority, that, that Jesus was living in Bethlehem. In fact, to the wise men, it probably makes sense now why Herod had inquired as to when the star originally appeared. Now Herod also has a good idea how old Jesus would have been by this point in our story. And I'm sure that Joseph was grateful that the wise men were, were not going to bring back a report to Herod. I'm sure Joseph was, was thankful. They, they chose to depart another way, buying him a few days. And yet Joseph, make no bones about it, Joseph, he knew that Jesus was in grave danger. As the promised Christ, Joseph knew that his stepson was the ultimate threat to Herod's power, to Herod's position. He knew that it would only be a matter of time before Herod realizes that the wise men have, have double-crossed him and come to Bethlehem looking for the child himself. I imagine that the night the wise men finally leave Bethlehem, Joseph, again, if I, if I was putting myself into his situation, I'm sure he had a very difficult time sleeping that night. I mean, God had chosen his wife, Mary, to be the mother of the promised Messiah. God had given him the honor of naming the boy Jesus. God had determined of all men, his son Jesus, the Savior of the world, would be charged to his care, to his protection. That evening as Joseph laid in his bed next to Mary with Jesus, fast asleep across the room, he wrestles with what, did, what to do in light of the recent developments. Did Herod really believe what the Scriptures said about the Christ? 
And when it finally dawns on Herod that the wise men weren't coming back, like how would he react? Would he send troops in search of the child? And if he did, Joseph is, is thinking, would it be best if we attempt some type of escape? Or, or maybe we just try to find some way to hide out. As Joseph lays there, again sleepless, playing out the, the very scenarios in his mind, he reaches the conclusion that, that really with what Herod already knew, they couldn't stay in Bethlehem. And yet, if they ran, where would they go? Where would it be safe? How much time did he really have to make a decision? Days? Weeks? Hours? Now, I love the fact that as Joseph is wrestling with a major decision on what to do, God once again speaks to him. He doesn't leave him flapping in the wind. He meets him where he's at. And for a second time, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph again in a dream in order to specifically address his present concerns and his current circumstances. Not only does this angel confirm that Herod was going to seek the child to destroy him, validating what were his pressing concerns. But God also takes it a step further by giving Joseph some instructions. In fact, a very simple set of instructions on what you need to do. You're right to be worried. Herod is going to seek the child. He's not interested in worship. He wants to destroy him. This is what you do, Joseph. Arise, or literally, wake up. So he's dreaming. Wake up, Joseph. Take the child, don't leave his mother, bring her too, and flee to Egypt. And stay there until I bring you word. It's safe to return. So verse 14, when Joseph arose, so he wakes up, he takes the young child and his mother by night, and they depart for Egypt. Now not only is Joseph obedient, but he didn't even wait to sunrise. God had spoken, his marching orders had been given, and there was an urgency to what needed to happen. Joseph doesn't know how much time he has, so they don't dither. He wakes Mary up, he explains, I had another dream, this is what the Lord told me. They grab everything that they can carry, and boom, they're gone under the cover of darkness. Now Matthew provides for us a bit of commentary about the story. He says that they remained in Egypt, look at the text, until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, and now he quotes Hosea 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, now regarding this connection that Matthew makes between Jesus and Egypt, if you do some research on your own to try to come up with an explanation for this, you will very quickly discover that there is very little to no exposition written on the topic. I listen to a lot of Bible studies on this. They all just read the verse and move right along. Nothing. That said, at the end of our study, I'm going to make the case that this connection between Jesus and Egypt, was the entire point in Matthew recording these events in the first place. It shouldn't be ignored. It shouldn't be glossed over. In fact, I think it's the key to understanding what Matthew's trying to articulate. But we'll get, that. We'll get to that at the end. With Joseph, Mary, Jesus, 
safely in Egypt, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, and this word deceived, it translates weaker than it should. In fact, in the old King James, the word is mocked. Like, Herod felt slighted, disrespected. Therefore, he, we're told, was exceedingly angry. He's at the point of, he's boiling over with rage. So he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and, it's all its, and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled, and that word fulfilled, it's to be finally rendered complete, what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, and he quotes Jeremiah 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children. Rachel was uh, the wife of, of Jacob, and she dies on the way to Bethlehem in the city of Ramah. So Jeremiah's doing a few things. He's connecting a few dots. So I heard this voice, lamentation, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her child, refusing to be comforted. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin because they are no, no more. Now, Matthew does something interesting in setting this up that's important for us because, again, it'll play itself out all throughout the book. He uses an, an interesting phrase. He says, then was fulfilled what was spoken. And, and that's significant. It's significant because it supports kind of a, a central idea to understanding Old Testament prophecy. And that's the reality that there are, in a lot of instances, dual fulfillments, sometimes even triplicates. When Jeremiah originally wrote this verse, chapter 31, verse 15, of a voice and Rama weeping, when he originally writes that, he's describing something happening in front of him. He's describing a period of mourning, intense mourning, that was associated with the Babylonian siege of Israel. And yet, while, while what he's writing is entirely applicable to the moment, there is a prophetic undertone that Matthew connects. He notes that the lasting fulfillment of what Jeremiah is seeing and writing actually occurs in this particular event and this moment in time. Now, with regard to Herod's actions, they can only be described as being evil, very evil, and satanic. Herod, he didn't know the family name of the child, doesn't know the child's name, doesn't know the family. He knows it's Bethlehem, but he doesn't have a specific location, a home. The wise men, they've skipped out on him. So Herod utilizes the information he does have at his disposal to formulate a plan, hoping to kill the newborn king of the Jews. Again, the child's in Bethlehem. Can't be more than two years old based upon the information that he's been given. So Herod issues a command. For all of the male children living not just in Bethlehem, but in its surrounding districts, two years and younger, to be slaughtered. Now, it is very difficult to say how many children would have fit these specific parameters. Once again, noting that Bethlehem is not a large place. I've heard estimates from 20 to 50. Uh, not a ton, but let's be real. For those mothers who had these little men, two years and under. What Herod does here is devastating. 
You know, so many of, of the women that Mary had befriended, they leave under the cover of darkness. They've left, they're left behind only to watch in horror as their sons are executed, ripped from their arms and executed right in front of their eyes for apparently no reason at all. Although I'm purely speculating, I do believe, because there's been kind of a bit of a debate about this story and how it's not recorded in any other places in, in history. There's a lot written about Herod the Great, a lot written about his atrocities. This story uh, isn't recorded in any other place but Matthew, and it's not even recorded in the other Gospels. Only Matthew records this story. Now, 20 to 50 kids, when you understand the, the brutality of Herod the Great, uh, wouldn't meet a threshold to probably be documented. Not to mention he, he dies soon after this, so there was maybe no point in writing it. Matthew documents it, I believe, personally. Again, can't prove it, speculating. I believe Matthew includes this story because Herod's actions had very likely impacted his own family. Like Bethlehem was largely populated by the priestly class, the Levites, who lived there and worked in Jerusalem at the temple. Matthew's name is Levi. He comes from the tribe of Levites. You know, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that Matthew maybe had lost an older sibling in this massacre. Now, before you just kind of dismiss that theory out of hand, keep in mind, it's obvious that Matthew had to have had some kind of firsthand knowledge in order to, to record a lot of the events we have in this story at all. Like, Matthew knows a lot of things that he wouldn't have known without an inside source, right? Without some type of knowledge, intimate knowledge. He knew Herod had inquired of the religious leaders where the Christ was to be born. How would he have known that? Unless he has connections to the priestly class. Like, yeah, I remember that. Herod came and he was freaking out and asked us, you know, where was the Christ to be born? And so Matthew uh, gets this second hand. He knows that they came back with an answer. He even knows, interestingly enough, of, of a secret meeting that Herod has with the wise men. And the fact that he actually asked in the secret meeting when the star had originally appeared. I don't have a great explanation other than the fact that I think Matthew has a lot more family connections to some of the things that were happening here, uh, then he lets on. Either way, it's important to point out, yes, Herod's actions here are evil. They're evil. But they're also satanic. Like, there is a satanic nature, a motivation behind what he does. Satan. Don't like to talk about him that much because he really doesn't deserve our attention. But he's real. And he knows certain things, important things. For example, that the Christ would seal his fate. And as a result, this is not the first time that Satan has, has acted in very brutal ways trying to thwart the plans of God to bring the Savior into the world. Whether it be the corruption of the human genome in the days of Noah, or the wicked actions of a Persian named Haman, or the evil intents of Antiochus Epiphanes, Satan has wanted nothing more than to either snuff out the Messianic bloodline or, in the case of the actions of Herod the Great, actually killed Jesus. So Herod's actions are evil, but there's also a satanic motivation behind what's taking place. Verse 19, 
Now, when Herod was dead, and, and as an aside, you, you might not find these things interesting. I do. And I'm the one preaching, so you'll have to bear with me. Herod the Great died, historically we know, in 4 B.C. Uh, at the age of 69. There's been a lot of mystery surrounding the nature of his death. I ran across one medical journal that described it this way. Herod died. Let me say how he died. Quote, chronic kidney disease complicated by a very uncomfortable case of maggot-infested gangrene of the genitals. So what comes around goes around. God will not be mocked. So Herod died. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then Joseph arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So Herod, uh, Joseph excuse me, seems to be planning to probably return to Bethlehem or maybe Jerusalem. He's afraid, though. So being warned by God in a dream, and this is the fourth such dream in Joseph's life, he, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. As the Lord originally instructed Joseph, they stayed in Egypt. They hunkered down in Egypt until Herod the Great has died. And God gives the okay to return. Both of these have happened. So Joseph's obedient, loads up the family. They, they engage in this 80-mile journey back home. Again, likely Bethlehem, Judea. That says when Joseph hears about Herod's son, Archelaus, reigning over the area, he is legitimately concerned, like historically. We know that following Herod the Great's death, Rome divided his kingdom into three regions, giving them to his three sons. Herod Antipas was given the Galilee, Philip the areas north and to the east of the Jordan, Archie was given Judea, and therefore Jerusalem. And not only was Archie cruel in his own right, but he proved to be so inept at governing that the Jews do something that would have been unthinkable. They petition Rome to intervene. They're like, hey, you conquered us. This guy is a, a moron. And you got to do something, Rome. This guy is just, he's running things into the ground. So only after 10 years on the throne, in 6 AD, he's stripped of his authority. He's banished to Vienna, which wasn't, as beautiful as it is today. It was kind of like an outposting. And he ends up being replaced. And, and why that's important, he's replaced by a Roman governor. So again, at this point, Rome allows people to govern themselves. The Edomites were local people. Uh, Herod the Great was an Edomite. His sons were Edomites. But the ineptitude, Rome replaces the Edomite, a local, with a Roman governor, uh, most famous of which would, have, would be... Pontius Pilate. And so that's how we end up with Pontius Pilate in the scene that becomes important later on. Justifiably unconcerned, uh, uh, concerned, uh, worried, unsure. 
Where do we go? The Lord said, leave Egypt, go back. This, this dude's reigning here. I don't really like that. We, we got to figure something out. So another dream from the Lord. And instead of Judea, God instructs Joseph to turn aside, we're told, into the region of Galilee. So this is the area that surrounds the Sea of Galilee. And in the end, Joseph decides, of all the places to settle in Galilee, they might as well return to his and Mary's hometown, which was Nazareth. And once again, as he does, Matthew points out the significance of Jesus growing up in Nazareth. He writes that it happened, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, admittedly, there is a lot of confusion about this reference, that he shall be a Nazarene. And the reason that there's a lot of confusion and speculation, debate and whatnot, is that there isn't actually a verse in the Old Testament that prophesies that the Messiah would indeed come out of Nazareth. Now, to be fair, I should add that many scholars see this reference uh, being connected back to Isaiah 11, verse 1. Uh, let me read you what Isaiah the prophet writes. He says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. And he's referring back to Jesse, the father of David, the Davidic line. The argument is that in the Hebrew, the word that we have for branch in Nazarene is so similar that it's thought that Matthew is, is employing a wordplay in kind of making this connection. Maybe. I don't know. Oh, you know what's often overlooked about the passage is that Matthew doesn't reference one prophet, does he? But the prophets. Again, look. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Plural. Some believe, and I would lean this direction, that Matthew isn't recording for us, it's not a direct quotation. But what he's doing is he's kind of, he's referencing this predominant theme of the prophets regarding messianic expectation. And what was the, the predominant expectation of the Messiah? It's that his upbringing would be very lowly, that it would be, he would come from humble beginnings. And the thought being that with that expectation of the, the type of town he would come out of, that coming out of Nazareth would fit within that expectation. And so it's more of a commentary that, yeah, Nazareth makes a lot of sense based upon what the prophets wrote about where he would grow up. You can go either way. That's the, the angle that I would take. Now understand, during the time of Christ, there was a significant cultural divide between the region of Judea and the Galilee. Culturally, they were very, very different places. Now, because Jerusalem was the prominent city in this part of the entire world, the region of Judea that surrounded Jerusalem, I mean, it was the power center. It was the seat of, of not just religion with the temple, but of learning. Keep in mind, in Judea, all of the, the wealth of Israel, it was concentrated in that, that area. All of the prominent families reside in Judea. And it's with that in mind that you should note that the general perspective 
of the religious and the political establishment to their kinsmen living in the Galilee was that they were second-class Jews. Like the elites of that day, they looked down on the folks in Galilee as being blue-collar, low-educated, largely poor country hicks. As one Jewish politician in that day, Hilarim Rodham Klinsberg, once said that Galileans belonged to the basket of deplorables. You see, the people who lived in the Galilee were the red hat wearing mega crowd, make Israel great again. They were looked down on. In fact, confirmed in the New Testament record, Galileans, those from Galilee, they actually possessed backcountry accents that reinforced like, these prejudices. Like when Peter's following behind the Christ, when he's been arrested and taken from, from spot to spot to spot, he's trying to, to lay low. But he gets called out. Why? Because of his, his country bumpkin accent. Like, wait a second, you're from the Galilee. I can hear it. You see, the ruling class, because you had within the Galilee Jewish cities intermingled with, with Gentile settlements. I mean, this was the, the wild, wild west. I mean, it was, it was semi-pagan even. And, and if that weren't enough, of all the cities that made up the Galilee, Nazareth probably had the worst reputation. Like located miles inland upon an important trade route that connected the Sea of Galilee with the Mediterranean, Nazareth was for lack of a better way of, of, of framing it, a glorified truck stop. Like the entire town existed to service merchants that were looking for a place to lay over. As such, the local economy consisted of, of little more than a few questionable motels, a Flying J petrol station, a full service stop mechanic shop, a Waffle House, a liquor store, probably a strip club, and a Piggly Wiggly. You see, as a result, like there should be no surprise that historically speaking, like the, the perspective was that Nazarenes, anyone that came from Nazareth, they were notoriously shady people, shady characters. Like consider that when hearing Jesus was from Nazareth, in John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel, he questions his brother Philip's sanity. And he asked this snarky question. You know, Philip's like, we found the Messiah. Oh, that's great. He's from Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the biblical testimony of Nazareth. And why would he ask it? Nothing good ever had. Like when people called Jesus, referred to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, and you'll find that a lot throughout the Gospels, it's never meant to be a compliment. In fact, the connection, the connotation to Nazareth, it was, it was designed to be a slight. I'll give you just one of what, what could be many examples. But in John 19, verse 19, we read how Pilate wrote a title, a, a plaque, and they put it on the cross above Jesus' head, above his head, and this is what was written. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. You see, to the elites in Judea, the idea that someone would grow up in Nazareth and honestly believe they were the Christ or a king, it was comical. 
Now, in writing his gospel, Matthew, he wanted his Jewish audience to know, yes, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. It's a historical fact. But he grew up in Nazareth on purpose. Like he actually, there was a lot of other places he could have grown up. Like there was an intent to this. It was an important part of God's plan. You see, God wanted his son Jesus not to grow up with the silver spoon of privilege or to grow up in the lap of luxury or to enjoy the abundance of opportunity. Instead, he wanted Jesus to come from humble beginnings. He wanted his son, think of it this way, to grow up on the other side of the tracks, to experience a plight, life, when the entire deck in the world was kind of stacked against him. Well, the enemies of Jesus always ridiculed him for this connection with Nazareth. We actually see this today in in the Muslim world uh, through the the use of, of terrorist organizations like ISIS, where they'll go and they'll identify Christian homes. You know how they identify Christian homes in the Middle East? They'll go and they'll spray paint the Arabic letter N. It's called the noon. They spray paint N for what? Well, this is, this is a follower of the, the Nazarene. They use it as a negative connotation, as an identifier of Jesus. It's meant to be ridicule. And yet, the simple and humble beginnings of Jesus... The fact he chose to grow up there. It's one of the reasons that Jesus, the person of Jesus, has always resonated with the masses. It's why he's so identified, like you identify with him. And the fact he's from Nazareth, while Nazarene has been used as an insult, it has been born as a badge of honor. That people use the same moniker to identify with the persecuted. It endears us to Jesus, the fact that he was the Nazarene. In order to unpack the larger theme that weaves its way through this chapter, again, with the time that we have left, let me start with kind of an admission. I've always struggled reading through this passage with how just just unnecessary and largely kind of unfair the whole situation seems to be. Now, now, I understand. I get why Joseph, Mary, and Jesus have to flee Bethlehem. I understand why they have to live in Egypt until the death of Herod. I mean, knowing the Messiah was alive and out there somewhere. As long as Herod was breathing air, Jesus was in danger. I get it. My issue, and here's my admission, my issue with the whole affair is why did Joseph have to take Mary and little Jesus and flee to Egypt when God could have just taken Herod out that very night? Yeah, Herod the Great is a big threat. Joseph's on his knees. I don't know what to do. Well, I'm, I'm the kid's real father. I'll just take that guy out. Like, it seems like that would just be such a more simplistic solution to an obvious problem. And let's be real, like, like, Don't detach yourself from the humanity of it all. Like for about a two-year period, Mary and Joseph have gone through the ringer, haven't they? 
Like they've both been doubted, ridiculed, likely alienated from their friends and family when Mary turns up pregnant. And then Joseph, believing her story, marries her anyway. I mean, there's a reason they stay in Bethlehem and don't go back to Nazareth initially. And if the stigma around Mary's pregnancy hadn't been enough, Joseph making the decision that he did. I mean, things in their story go from bad to worse. When Joseph receives instructions uh, that the Roman Caesar is on a power trip, wants everyone to get counted, and he has to take his very pregnant wife, Mary, 70 miles south to be registered. Like, that's terrible. If, If you've been the husband of a pregnant lady, that's not an easy journey in a car get alone on foot. And then things go from bad to worse, from worse to whatever the next word would be. Terrible. They go from Nazareth, they get to Bethlehem, they get to Bethlehem, and then what? They can't even find a room. She's pregnant, and they can't find a room, which forces them to settle for this dirty, unsanitary stable, which isn't a stable like you think of it. It's basically a cave that they have to stay the night in. Now, again, Mary and Joseph, young cats, they're going with the flow. I know the situation isn't perfect. You know, they make the most of kind of a raw deal. They clean up the stable a little bit. I'm sure the old room will open tomorrow. They make up a bed out of whatever hay and straw they're able to get. And then imagine the moment when Mary looks at Joseph and informs him that her water just broke and she's going into labor. I mean, of all of the times and places to deliver your first kid. Rough. Like the scene you can, you can imagine is chaotic. I love this passage included in, in Matthew that she brought forth her firstborn son. I think it was she bringing forth her firstborn son because at the first sight of blood, Joseph was down for the count. Mary's like, you couldn't have helped. So she brings, like, it's, it's at some point, right? At long last, Jesus is asleep. They've laid him in the manger. Mary and Joseph, are, you know, they finally are like, yes, we get to ease into a night's sleep. Nope. And the dead of night, the worst thing can happen. Company shows up. Like when all they would have wanted was a silent night where all was calm. I mean, that's how the hymn goes. Mary and Joseph find themselves dealing with a group of disheveled, unclean, smelly shepherds. They're land pirates who are like, we'd like to see your baby. Like, you have to give, and again, maybe it's just playing through the story, you got to give Mary and Joseph a ton of credit. Like, their lives have been flipped upside down, but they've kind of navigated every little wrinkle, every complication with a bit of grace. Like, they get thrown curve after curve, but they, they haven't complained, have they? Nor have they questioned God's love for them. They're young. Again, they're very poor. Joseph loves Mary, and they both love Jesus. Again, just playing out the story, the crowds at some point do leave Bethlehem after they've registered. So it's safe to say, again, them being in a house that Mary 
uh, Joseph. Joseph finds work. They find uh, an adequate dwelling place. They, they make a house a home. Within weeks, life kind of stabilizes for them. One month passes to the next. Things kind of normalize. It's a good time. Joseph finds a great synagogue, one with a basketball league. He can start attending. Mary befriends some of the other mothers on the block. Playdates with the tots filled the schedule. Mary and Joseph, in, in a lot of ways, they settle into this nice, quiet, normal existence, life in Bethlehem. And then the day comes. Wise men show up at the doorstep, show up unannounced, and everything immediately, instantly changes. Not only do Mary and Joseph find themselves in a situation where they have to uproot their lives and flee Bethlehem under the cover of darkness. They can't say goodbye. They had just bought new furniture. They can't load up and take with them. And they have to take a, a, a longer journey further south into a foreign country. Now, it's true. There was a, a significant Jewish population that lived in Egypt at the time. But, I mean, they have to completely start over. And they don't know how long that's going to that's gonna take. The Lord said, until Herod dies, and I give you word. Then you can return. Again, as I read through this story, I just work out the scenario. It just would have been so much easier, wouldn't it? If God had just killed Herod. So why didn't he? Now, I'm sure that God used all of these things to reinforce, you know, important truths into the lives of, of, of Joseph and Mary. You know, important ideas, like they weren't alone. Like God was aware of every complication. And what's more, when they didn't know what to do, God would give them guidance. He would lead them. They would have to learn how to trust. I'm sure they even learned, hey, evil, even evil can't deter God's will. And that's a good lesson. And yet, Matthew is clear to us that all of these things were necessary. Why? Well, it centers on the idea that God wanted in his plan the Jewish Messiah, his son, to be called out of Egypt. It's the linchpin. For a second, I want you to take a step back from what you think you know about this chapter. And, and even then, do your best to kind of try to like set aside all the you know, Christmas connotations. And I want you to think about, just for a moment, think about the similarities of the events that Matthew records in this chapter and all of the experiences of the Hebrew people as it relates to Egypt. Like, nothing in Scripture is an accident, is it? First, think about it. How did the Jewish people, which at the time was, was just Jacob and his sons, how did they end up originally leaving Judea and ending up living in Egypt? Well, it was through the actions of a dreamer named Joseph. <laughs> like, don't miss the obvious. Like, can we honestly say it's just a coincidence, a quinky-dink, that God deliberately chose a man named Joseph to be Jesus' stepfather, only to supernaturally guide him using dreams? There's only two people in the Bible that have as many dreams as this. 
And they're both named Joseph. How about this? In Genesis, God used this dreamer Joseph to get his people to Egypt in order to preserve their lives from a dangerous famine gripping the land. Now, in similar fashion, in Matthew 2, we have the story of God using another dreamer named Joseph to get his son to Egypt to preserve his life from the dangerous tyrant seeking him harm. And the similarities don't end there. In Exodus 1, we're told that since Pharaoh was feeling threatened by the Jews, what does he do? He ordered the execution of all Hebrew male children two years, young, two years old and younger. Amazingly, the one child able to escape the slaughter, Moses, God raised up to be the deliverer of his people. Fast forward 2,000 years, in Matthew 2, we have another ruler, Herod, feeling threatened by the king of the Jews, ordering an identical massacre. And again, the one child that just so happens to escape the slaughter, Jesus, God raises up to deliver his people. Like, understand, even the name given to Christ reinforces this interesting connection. Remember that Jesus' name in Hebrew was what? Yahshua or Joshua. I don't know any other Joshuas. Crazy Joshua just so happened to be the man that God would raise up to lead his people into the land of promise. Coincidence? (laughs) One more. You know, Mary's name isn't Mary. In Hebrew, it's Miriam, which just so happens to be the the name of Moses' older sister who follows at a distance and sees that the basket that has Moses in it gets hung up in the reeds, and then Pharaoh's daughter finds it, and they're like, I want to, Daddy, let me keep him. And he's like, yeah, but you need somebody to take care of the baby. And Miriam's like, I'm here. Like the primary caregiver of the deliverer's name was Miriam or Mary. Now, one of the foundational components of Matthew's gospel and why he writes in the first place is the notion that Jesus, as the king of the Jews, came to be the king of all men and women. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it's why this account of Jesus' life, Matthew's account, it, it will end with Jesus giving his followers a great commission to do what? To take the gospel and to all of the nations of the world. With that in mind, Matthew, he intentionally records these events in such a way, I believe, to draw an unmistakable parallel of the origins of Jesus back to Egypt. Something that would have been immediately picked up on by a Jewish audience. You see, Jesus being called out of Egypt intended to hearken back to Jewish history so that the people could fully understand what it was God was up to. You know, years earlier, God had used Egypt as the incubator by which he took the family of Jacob via the dreams of Joseph and grew them into a nation. When that process was finally completed, God then called the children of Israel out of Egypt, delivering them with the one child to survive a massacre, Moses, and then leading them into the land of promise under a man named Joshua. He does this to make them his people. Now, tragically, that's where kind of the story runs off the rails. You see, in many ways, 
what is happening here. And God calling Jesus out of Egypt. It was a repeating of the original Exodus. And yet this time, instead of calling out a people through which the Christ would be born, God called out His Son through which all people might be born again. It's a repeating of the Exodus. And the first Exodus from Egypt, God called out a people from which was born the Christ. And the second from Egypt, God called out the Christ from which was born a new people. Let me close with one final proof this was indeed Matthew's intention. Operating under this premise that Jesus was called out of Egypt and he came into the land of promise to, to, to raise up a new people, right? to do a new work of God. And that all these things, he had to be called out of Egypt, all these things are placating on the original Exodus right? to reinforce this idea. You want to take a guess where Jesus would start? Well, in chapter 3, Jesus will begin his ministry by not just by being baptized in the Jordan River, but he will be baptized in the Jordan River at a very place known as Bethabara, the very location that Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land originally. When the Ark of the Covenant parted the, the waters. Interesting. We'll unpack that in our next time together. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, what it says. We love you in Jesus' name.